Hey, this is Lisa. Today on Rewrite Radio, we're revisiting an episode that features George Saunders in celebration of the Man Booker Prize that he won last week for his first novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. We had such a great time hosting him at the last festival in 2016. As you'll hear in this conversation with Lou Klatt, George has a capacious imagination and is generous with his insight on craft. It's definitely worth a second or third listen. I admit I've actually listened to this interview several times. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. On today's episode of Rewrite Radio, we'll listen to George Saunders in an onstage conversation with Lou Klatt at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A widely celebrated author of essays, short stories, and now his first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, Saunders discussed a wide range of topics, including the intimacy of storytelling, how weird narratives work to disrupt moral cul-de-sacs, and creative writing as a form of play. To help introduce Saunders' interview, I called up Kirsten Valdez-Quaid, who we were also lucky enough to have speak at the 2016 festival. Kirsten wrote the critically acclaimed short story collection, Night at the Fiestas, and her own fiction has appeared in The New Yorker and The Best American Short Stories, among other places. She's also an assistant professor at Princeton University. Hello. Hi, Kirsten. This is Lisa. Lisa, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Good. It's so nice to hear your voice. Likewise. Where did we catch you? I am at my grandmother's house in Santa Fe right now. Oh, lovely. For those who listen to Rewrite Radio, they learned a little bit about your grandmother uh, in your session at the 2016 festival. Uh, thanks so much for joining us there and telling us your story and her story. Oh, well, it was a joy to be there. Um, and it's such a joy to be talking to you again and about George Saunders, um, whom I admire so much. It was so fun to have him at the 2016 festival. When did you first uh, kind of um, come across his work? The first story I read um, was I Can Speak, which was in The New Yorker. And I read that when I was in my very first creative writing workshop. And it's it's such a, it's not one of his most commonly anthologized stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this epistolary story um, from the point of view of a customer service representative um, of a company that sells this sort of crazy dystopian um, baby product. It's a mask that fits over the face of an actual baby <laughs> and oh, hypes language um, in you know sophisticated language into the baby's mouth and so he's he's responding to complaint letters and over the course of the story the real humanity and pain of this poor guy comes out and mm. i remember just being so um impressed by just how imaginative the piece was and um how very funny and also incredibly painful um it's, you know, I typically tend to write and read and adore um, work that is is more realist, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and so I was I was it was such a wonderful sort of opening to to read this story and to be so moved by it, um, um. moved to laughter and <laughs> moved to to real emotion. Yeah, he mentions um, in this interview we're about to listen to that maybe the conventional modes of narrative can't disturb the moral cul-de-sacs of our time, um, which I think is an interesting, um, you know, that's something he's really working on is how to kind of disrupt our kind of innate pieties about how things are, I think. Absolutely. I mean, and his stories do what the best literature does, which is to make us see our own world anew. Um, to make us experience it anew. And he talked about that. He talks in the interview about, um, you know, the after reading really good work, you know, the reader feels, I think he says, feels more alive for a few mm-hmm. moments. Um, and that's absolutely how I feel after reading Saunders's work. Um, I, I teach 
the 10th of December, both the collection and um, the story, and, and the first story in that collection, Victory Lap, I teach pretty frequently. And mm-hmm. um, it's, I, I just love that story. I love, the, I love it for the expansiveness and humanity and generosity toward these characters that he also pokes fun at. (laughs) You know, it's both, both of those things. Mm -hmm. He pokes fun without ever being cruel, Mm. um, which I think is a hard line to walk. Yeah. And I think what, you know, one of the things I admire so much about Saunders and, um, and I, I feel it especially in his last collection, the 10th of December is how willing he is to flirt with sentimentality, you know, to, mm. to get right up against the edge of that. Um, and he never teeters into it, but he's, he, he's willing to feel and to feel deeply and to make the reader feel deeply about his characters. And I think that that's not as common as it should be in contemporary fiction. I think a lot of fiction is very defended and, you know, there are these, there's an ironic distance. Um, There's so much fear of being sentimental and being cheesy um, because, you know, sentimentality is dishonest. Mm -hmm. And, And yet really honest literature is literature that's willing to to look at that emotion and to express that deep emotion um, without self-consciousness, with you know, with real courage and um, without it teetering into the sentimental. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just admire that so much about um, about Victory Lap, certainly um, about the 10th of December. Um, they're such deeply felt stories. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk about Saunders' work. Um, It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Bye-bye. Bye. And now George Saunders, introduced and interviewed by Calvin College English professor Lou Klatt at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A note for our listeners, this recording does include content and strong language that might not be suitable for children. Welcome everyone, my name is Lou Klatt, and it's my happy task today to throw some questions at storyteller and essayist George Saunders. George Saunders has the distinction of perhaps being the festival author most blurbed by other festival authors. (laughs) Zadie Smith, for example, our plenary speaker last night, once compared his satirizing wit to the sharp humor of Mark Twain. Tobias Wolf, who held forth in the festival's opening session, has extolled his scary and unforgettable originality. I half expect Nadia Bolts Weber to charge the stage right now and knock me out of the way so that she too can get the chance to sing his praises. One of the first things that strikes you about the strange fiction of George Saunders is the adventurousness of it. In fact, the predicaments he imagines for his characters are so outlandish that it often takes more than a few pages to get oriented. By the end of a Saunders story, you're not always sure what exactly has happened but you've been wildly entertained. And you suspect that behind the highly crafted hilarity and bewilderment lies something that matters. This is not simply because the surprising turns his stories take make you feel like someone has moved your cheese. Insert here your own preferred corporate catchphrase. Though that's a sensation his freaks of fiction can inspire. But because for all his outrageousness, Saunders tells a story that probes tender spots close to home. Sometimes a little too close to home. It turns out that his invented worlds make obvious distortions that we take for normal. 
insecurities we didn't know we harbored, compromises that quietly erode us. We walk away from his narratives recognizing that it's Saunders who has told the truth, told it plainly, told it like it is. We're the ones who are pretending. For his ingenuity in telling the human story, Saunders has been named one of Entertainment Weekly's top 100 creative people. A Guggenheim Fellow and a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. His collection of stories, 10th of December, the most recent of his fiction books, was a National Book Award finalist. Saunders teaches in the MFA program at Syracuse University, where he has been a professor of English for the last 20 years, and where he delivered the commencement address for the class of 2013, an address which exhorted the graduates in their pursuit of careers and wealth and other kinds of worldliness to err in the direction of kindness. Please welcome to the Festival of Faith and Writing, George Saunders. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Lou. That was beautiful. I think we should just end it right there. <laughs> I'd be happier. Yeah. <laughs> what he said was right. Have a good day. <laughs> All right. There are lots of questions I'd like to ask you. Yeah, let's, let's yeah, turn we'll, toward each other. We'll turn that. We'll face that way. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> Yeah, there, there are lots of questions I'd like to ask you, but let's start with something you wrote in your essay, The Perfect Gerbil, uh, which is, is the best title ever for an essay. <laughs> yeah. The Perfect Gerbil. Uh, that essay is your analysis of Donald Bartlemay's story, The School. Um, you write, Bartlemay knows that the narrative pa- pattern of fiction is just an excuse for the real work of the story, which is to give the reader a series of pleasure bursts. That's a very felicitous phrasing, pleasure bursts. Can you talk about the way pleasure energizes stories or Bartlemy's story or other stories that you find extremely pleasurable? Sure. You know, my my trajectory, uh, I I was from Chicago, from the South Side, didn't know any artists or writers. and so as a kind of a you know, working class person aspiring to art, my first assumption was that it, it, it could have nothing to do with me. You know, <laughs> art had to be that, that series of things that you couldn't quite do. Uh, you know? And so uh, there was a long period of kind of slavishly over-intellectualizing the process. So you, I would read Hemingway and then try like, almost like with pincers, try to, well, where did it, where did it get me? Okay, I'll try to do that. You know, very almost like engineering type of work. <laughs> And then uh, late in the game, I had a, <clears throat> a revelation, which was that for me, uh, the, the kind of energy I felt as a kid uh, watching George Carlin or Monty Python or my uncles, who were really funny, that that energy wasn't going to be... The only literature I could ever make was going to thrive on that energy rather than on some kind of conceptualized or intellectual yeah. precepts. So that was a big breakthrough. It just sort of go, yeah, uh, all my life I've gotten myself out of trouble by being funny or into trouble being funny. <laughs> but but, that, but the, the, it would be weird if, the, if this 300-page thing called the book was going to come into existence without any reference to that, which I actually did in real life. You know? yeah. so, so then when I had that idea, suddenly it was, uh, it was a way to proceed, to say, yeah, my job as a, as a story writer is to, you, all you have to do is start. From there, it's my responsibility to keep you uh, compelled and finish the book. And the realization that without that, if you don't finish the story, there's no politics. There's no spirituality. There's no theme. There's just a closed book and you're playing Angry Birds or something. So, <laughs> so, so that for me, it was kind of a simplifying uh, precept to say, my job is to keep the, writer on the, the reader on the hook. And now, in that Bartholomew story, I, struck, I hit on this idea that... Um, when, when we were kids, there was this Hot Wheel set that had a little uh, plastic gas station. I don't know if anybody's seen this. But inside the gas station were two 
rubber wheels that would rotate. And the, the thing was, you, put, you pushed your car in there and it would spit it out at high velocity. And if you arrange it right, you, you could run it through the whole house, you know, and it would still be going when you came home from school. Not that I, anyone ever did that. But, um, but, not but that I, you ever did No, that. no, of course not. But I think that's actually a great model for a story. We just have to keep the car going on the track. Then, uh, what I tell my students at Syracuse is, your job is to find the three or four plastic gas stations that you have that can cause what? Nothing intellectual, nothing fancy, to cause the reader to keep going. Sometimes it's a joke, sometimes it's a nature description, sometimes it's the frankness of tone, but that is really what you need. And that, those gas stations, I tell my students, can't possibly unre be unrelated to who you are as a human being, to the normal way you, you charm people and you, and you engage people. Of course, it's, it's a rarefied version, and you, we have to, it's easier said than done that we would accept who we actually are, you know, and make art out of that. But that, I think, is the, the basis of that essay. Yeah. Who does that well? Who, who are the pleasure bursters? Uh, As it were. Well, I, I think every writer that we love, I, I would argue, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I think because it's a little bit like a, uh, it's a seduction of sorts. You know, you, you a, a writer will, Dave Foster Wallace is a writer I really yeah. love. Okay, but David, and, and I knew him pretty well, and what you saw on the page was very much what you saw in person. But again, mm -hmm. purified and rarefied and, and made into art. But one of the things that, I think if you read Dave, one of the things that gets engaged is a certain impatience. He really, you know, he really talks. He really goes and goes. Well, what I noticed reading him is that feeling gets brought up in a reader, that bit of resistance. And then just about when you can't take it, he'll say some unbelievably brilliant thing that cuts right to who you are as a human being, and you are suddenly reengaged. Mm -hmm. So just like, you know, if, we're at a, if we're at a, you're on a date, and your date is, is droning, 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 uh, and you're about to get up and leave, and suddenly he says something really amazing, well, you just re-upped for another round, you know? Mm. So I think this is the way that writers work. And it's a, <laughs> and, and for, and for uh, well, that's maybe more about my dating life. Than, but, <laughs> but, but I think for those of us who are readers, we, we go through that process all the time. We yeah. see our resistance rising, and if we're halfway decent reader, resistance doesn't mean you shut the book, but you, the resistance rises. A good writer knows that somehow. Uh, I'm, I'm, being, I'm waxing philosophical, I better put a fart joke in, you know? <laughs> or I've had nine fart jokes, I better wax philosophical for a while. But, but this is very empowering for writers. What it means is whatever you have is sufficient. Now, it, the minute we try to deny what we have and try to be somebody else, then it's trouble. But if you accept who you are, you'll know how to deal with your strengths and weaknesses. We, we do, we do it all the time, you know? So that seems to argue for a kind of integrity between the writer and the writing. Yes, and it, and exactly. And it also argues for an intimacy between reader and writer. Mm. And I would say a good work of any kind of prose is a, maybe the most intimate conversation you can have with another human being. Mm. Uh, here's what I have. And the, writer, the reader rises to debate, albeit with some resistance. You say, yes, I agree. And, and you have this kind of back and forth. For me, it's a little bit like a motorcycle sidecar thing. <laughs> So in a good story, those things are so close, they're touching shoulders. Yeah. And when the writer goes left, the reader goes, I'm with you, you're scaring me, you know? Uh, but when in a bad story, there's a, like three miles between. I'm going left. And he says, whoa, who? What are we talking about? Right. So, so my thing is through revision, what I'm trying to do is imagine my reader so well and so lovingly that we are almost you know, fused at the shoulder. And when I go left, she goes, oh yeah, you painted me into a corner, I have to go there with you. And that's where emotion comes from in the story. So we can't write to avoid being intimate, is what you're saying. You can. We do. But it's, I think that's what revision is, is saying, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not crediting my reader with enough intelligence, and therefore yeah. the reader would feel a distance between the two of us, and that's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so given that and as you've said before, the writer's main job is to provide a wild ride for the reader. Um, how would you say the writer can avoid pandering to an audience that most of the, of the time prefers entertainment to self-examination? I don't, I don't think those two things are at all separate. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, what's more entertaining than have, one, have somebody speaking your, the most intimate truth 
You know, what's more entertaining? If I could read a mind out there and go, hey, Phil, I know what you want to know. Boom. I know what you're worried about. I know what you're scared of. What's more entertaining than that? Nothing, actually. You know? yeah. So for me, now also, this is partly my, uh, my background is that I, my, I get the most insightful when I'm trying to be the most entertaining. That's a quirk of my south side of Chicago personality. So, you know, but, but I think the idea that you're, uh, you're trying to imagine the most intelligent, worldly, in a good way, you know, experienced human being, and then talk directly to her, that's always going to be entertaining. Who doesn't like that? Who, who doesn't like being valued in conversation? Yeah. So you would collapse the distinction between average reader and intelligent reader that O'Connor sort of puts forward as what she's aiming for, both the average reader and the intelligent reader, like Shakespeare, the average, you know. I, I, I think I agree with that, but what I, the way I tend to think yeah. of it, and all this is just pragmatic, how can I get work done? But the way I think about it is, let's pretend that there's no such thing as an unintelligent reader. Right. And that even if somebody is maybe uh, not inclined to like my style of writing, if I assume that they'll get it, a certain number of them will. And just like in, 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 uh, in life, you know, if you look at somebody and say, yeah, I'm probably not very smart, you know. But if you say, well, I'm going to talk to you as if, as if you're more intelligent than I am, uh, who doesn't rise to that occasion? Right. You know? Well, some people don't, but, 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 <laughs> but, but, you're not, but you're none the worse for having tried that. You know, to, to assume right. someone's more intelligent than you are doesn't cost you anything. Right. Yeah. Um, Unless you're a heart surgeon, and they're actually stupider than you are. Then it costs you something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's complicated. Um, so entertainment, mm. all right, and, and laughter. Mm. We talk a lot about that and, uh, and our need for it. Um, what, why do we need comedy? Um, what's humor's relationship to truth-telling? I mean, you, you're, you're a big fan of Twain. Mm. That, is that yeah, right? Sure. Yeah, Yeah. I, I think humor is just... Uh, you know, if somebody farts in an elevator. That's not funny. It's already funny. They already, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but it's funny. I, I think George Carlin, everybody knows who did it. If two yeah. people are in an elevator, everybody knows who did it. So, so <laughs> humor, humor essentially, I think, is, is, is simply speaking a truth that's already ambient. Yeah. And for whatever reason, politeness or uh, timidity, we don't speak the, the, the ambient truth. So... In a sense, laughter is a form of relief. If somebody's saying something ridiculous, there's tension. Someone points it out, we, we laugh in relief. So that's, I mean, that's my kind of clinical answer. In, yeah. in fact, I mean, the, Flannery O'Connor said this beautiful thing. She said, uh, uh, a writer can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So the real answer is I uh, can get energy out of the prose I'm writing when I consent to being funny or when I steer towards the, my natural inclination. Even if somebody could say to me, humor is an inferior form of fiction, I would still say, well, it's what I got. And, and, and it's not as inferior as the kind of fiction I get when I don't, when I avoid being funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so what would you say to your students or writers in the audience who don't really write funny fiction? That's great. I mean, Henry James is not exactly a you know, oh, he's a knee slapper. <laughs> but, but he's a great writer, you know. So, so I think this is where, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a mode of expression that sits comfortably on who we actually are, yeah. our, our actual way. And it's not that the, humor, mm. the humorous way is the best. It's just mine. Yes. So I think all of us, and, you know, we know this from the way we cloak ourselves in a personality. At some point in your life, you get tired of falsifying, and you just want to be who you are. And I think what readers like is when they can sense that a writer is being just who she is meant to be. And I think in, from a larger standpoint, what we have is thousands of people, great artists, who are being authentically what they want to be. Which one of them is right? All of them. The, co the collection is somehow ennobling for all of us. It's not that you have to seize on the right way of thinking or living. So I have students who, who aren't funny, naturally and try to be, and I try to dissuade them from that because it's anti-energetic, mm -hmm. anti it doesn't, yeah. yeah. But more often than not, I think there's people who, uh, I mean, imitation is part of the game at that stage, you know, it's honorable. Uh, so what we do at Syracuse, we get, last year we had, uh, this year, 650 applications for six spots. So they're already great. So you're just trying to find a way to help them or, or guide them to be, to do the set of things that only they can do. And that's a sort of a subtle thing that, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, your longest story in Persuasion Nation, um, it's, it's one of the craziest pieces of fiction I've ever read. Uh, though I would argue it's not an outlier. No, no it's just a little crazier than the other. <laughs> right, right. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, there's, uh, there's a lot of wackiness going on, including inanimate objects that are characters, such as a bag of Doritos that confronts and then decapitates a young man. What's weird about that? Yeah, right, I know. <laughs> right. right. And a Wendy's chicken boat Columba, uh, combo, which is shaped like a ship and fires mini salsa cannons. Yeah. Um, it's a story that seems almost on the verge of nonsense. And it's one of the things I'm really interested in in your work. It's as if you've intentionally, you're intentionally pushing language to the breaking point. Like beyond what it's capable of. Do, do you ever feel like you're going too far? Yeah. On that one, I went, wait. I mean, I, and then I, I scrolled it back in to get what you have there. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, my, my, here's my, my working assumption. is a, 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 a short story is not life. It's not a simulacrum of life. It's, it's maybe... It, it, we don't know what it is, actually. It's a, it's, a, it's a box that we go into to be stimulated. And when we come out, we uh, feel vaguely that the stimulation was profitable for us. Mm. So that's a pretty, I mean, that's what it is, actually. So, when you, so my thing is, if, I, if somebody said to me, write a story where there's two talking staples and a uh, pencil sharpener, sure. <laughs> be, be, no, because the thing is, it's not, it, it's, it's a, a story means organically by how it proceeds, given its starting point. The fact that staples and a pencil sharpener, what's going to get into that story? Me, of course, or you <laughs> if you write it. Uh, no matter that it's, you've got this weird facade, the working through the story's issues through many, many revisions is going to make it profound if you're patient enough, patient enough to see it through. Mm -hmm. The story will make certain problems of silliness and all that, but if you keep working on it, it will eventually throw off meaning. So that's why, in that story, I kind of just felt like... Um, I wanted to try to just be pure out funny without any thought about human values for change. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of my, I wanted to do stand-up. And I did it for about three months, and then the story wasn't working. So I had to go back in and kind of titrate in yeah. actual values. But, you're, but you're, I mean, my thing is, we live a short time. Uh, I've chosen this art form. Yeah. Let's get out on the perimeter and see what it can do. But my thing is, Chekhov is my big hero. Yeah. And I think, all right, so I want to, if I have to talk to Stapler's story, I just want, I would like for Chekhov to be able to read it and not be disgusted. So he, he, he would read it, and of course he's dead, so that, it's kind of, but, but you know, for, for somebody like Chekhov, or, or for that matter, Tobias Wolf, who, I want yeah. him to be able to read the story and say, okay, your method is strange, but your intention is the same old good-fashioned hmm. intention, which is to show the heart in conflict with itself. And you touch on, in your beautiful introduction, you touch on this idea, it might be that in order to do that old-fashioned work, we have to use really strange new materials. You know? Or it could, another way of saying it, it might be that the kind of moral cul-de-sacs and difficulties we get into in our particular time will not be rattled by conventional realist narrative. In, in other words, there are things happening in contemporary uh, classical music that are so strange and percussive and weird, but they produce very strong emotions that couldn't be produced by the classical toolbox. So I think that's part of, I mean, that's, again, it's sort of an after-the-fact rationalization, yeah. but there are moments in the story, you know, I revise them for many, many years, and at the end, sometimes they just pop in ways that really I didn't expect. And in those moments, I sometimes think, yeah, that's actually what life feels like to me more than anything else, that, that moment that I got through weirdness. So in that model, as you said, the weirdness is, is a means to the old classical end of trying to understand what we're doing on the planet. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned Chekhov uh, and, and speaking to your literary mentors in your writing. Um, and the more I'm around, the more, and I talk to writers like yourself, the more I, I hear that, 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 that the specific audience you're writing for often is someone who lived 100 years ago. Sure, yeah. It's, a, it's like in, in spiritual practice, you know, there's a lineage that you are yeah. fortunate enough to find. Uh, and the mm -hmm. deepest conversations are going to be the ones where you are talking to Tolstoy, 
you know, uh, you know, uh, what, what do you think? You know, am I am I speaking? Or, or the, another way I'll say to my students is, you know, if you read a book and you think this is the most perfect book, there's nothing else to be said, then great, you can go to law school. You know, you don't have to do that. But 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 often what I found is when I read a great story by anybody, there's that first wave of you know. You're, you're moved, you're envious, you're a little resentful, you're moved, you're, you know. And then, but in, in that mix, there's sometimes a little tiny voice saying, he got this wrong. You know? <laughs> and, and that's true. I mean, relative to one's experience, how could anyone else get every single valence? So, for yeah. example, when I, I was a big Hemingway guy, I, but I also, uh, as a working class kid from Chicago, I was like, he didn't quite get my, my, my dad owned a restaurant called Chicken Unlimited. It was a franchise, we had two of them. And uh, it was really fun, you know, I was his, I was his delivery driver and uh, our, our motto was, this is very zen, Chicken Unlimited doesn't stop at chicken. <laughs> but, and so we, you know, we had these franchises on the south side and these really crazy, lovely, lost souls would drift in and sit there for four hours, you know, and you get to know them as a high school kid. And when I turned to Hemingway, I didn't see that world mm. at all. Mm. So even as I was admiring him and being totally in, enthralled with him, there was a little voice saying, what, he, what would he think of your dad's restaurant? You know, mm. the Chicken Unlimited was pleasant. <laughs> I, you know, I don't, so, <laughs> so, so part of what we're trying to do is say, yeah, of course, I, I admire my hero so much, but is there anything yet to be said? And there will always be something yet yeah. to be said because the, the universe is so vast. You know? yeah. The risk taking that, that you do in, in that story and, and so many others, uh, it makes me feel like you don't fear failure like the rest of us, but I'm sure you do, oh, or maybe, maybe you don't. I think maybe, yeah, a lot. But, but what failure, do you do with that fear? Well, failure for me would be to put out a story that was just like a bunch of other stories. Yeah. That would be the most, I, I live in fear that someone would say, ah, he's lost it, he's just, <laughs> what a bore. You know, that's the worst fear. For someone to say, that fucker's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did it. You know, I, I, Really, and so, I, so I mean, that's more of a, I mean, I, I, there's, I'm sure there's a psychological reason, but, but, but I don't want to be boring. And also, I don't want to bore myself. And in my process of, of uh, I'll talk about this later tonight, but in my process of writing, it's, uh, there's a lot of tweaking on the sentence level, and that is to squeeze out any sloth, you know, mm. any place where you go, eh, that's good enough, or eh, they won't notice. That, mm. I don't like that. So... Those suite of tendencies tend to make me much more comfortable doing something reckless than dull. I mean, I'm writing, I told you earlier, I'm writing a piece uh, on Donald Trump's uh, campaign. I went to a bunch of rallies. And, uh, You're the man. Yeah, I'm making me very nervous. But, <laughs> but, but, that, but I'm in the middle of that. I'm at the point right now where I have to push into the reckless territory. And I mean, literally, like today, I was looking at this morning, and this is not... not it's not telling the truth enough. So I'm noticing that in my body, I just feel like no way. I am not turning in a bunch of warmed over truisms to the New Yorker, to my friends at the New Yorker. I'm not gonna do it. So I know that I have to push into a higher register that will be a little scarier and nuttier and there'll be some formal innovations. In that. And, now, and now I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm willing to do that. That's better that than the other thing. But that seems paradoxical to me that recklessness gets at the truth. But it's not really recklessness. It's a con that's, it's what, a, that's what you called it. Well, yeah, well, oh, damn it. You think I'm not running for president or I'd be screwed. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a rec it's maybe like a, you have a reckless hat and you have a, uh, I call it my inner Catholic nun hat. So you, you go off and you do something really, like that story you mentioned. Real, ah, yeah. talking burritos, ha, ha, ha. You know, there's a guy who, who in a television commercial, the, the shtick is that his, his penis gets cut off by a, by a Ford or something. I don't know what it is. But anyway, so you put that on and then you say... I was afraid you were going to go there. Yeah, <laughs> I always go there. But, but then, so you have, you have that reckless hat on, but then you have to say, okay, we don't actually, as readers, we don't actually like mere recklessness. Because that's what we all did when we were freshmen in high school. You know, right. I'm gonna just type, you know. That, that isn't actually, there's not a value in that. So there's a certain recklessness, wildness. Yeah. And then there's another voice that says, now wait a minute, I gotta shape this so it doesn't, so it's not just random. So recklessness at the outset, tempered with, you know, carefulness, produces a third valence, which I don't know what the name of that is, but that's what I'm yeah. going for, is the third thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. I'm gonna amend that. I'm gonna... <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, 
Obviously, you seem to be having a good time on the page. Uh, is writing play, or can you talk about writing as play? Yeah, I, I love it. More and more with every year, it's, it's so much fun. But it's play, it's play in a way, I guess like football is play. Yeah. You sometimes get the crap knocked out of you, you know, and you, and you sometimes make mistakes and screw it up for your team and your knee goes out. And, I mean, but, but the larger thing is very playful and fun. And, and you know, the thing is, you, I, I think I, um, you know, my stories are dark, obviously. And I often will get asked about that. And the Catholic kid in me is like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I, I don't want him to be positive and luminous and so on. Uh, but then I, I have to remind myself, it's a, it is play. It's, there, no actual humans are harmed in the, <laughs> so then, you, So then you think, well, why am I doing it? Well, I think I'm doing it. I mean, and there you, again, you look to your masters. What has happened to me when I read a Gogol story or, or a, a Tolstoy story or Alice Monroe? What's happened to me? Well, factually, what's happened to me is I just came alive for a couple of minutes, mm. during and after. Uh, and you know, we can talk about what I mean. But anyone who's read knows that feeling. You're just a little more in the world for a couple of minutes afterwards. You're more, and you can list compassionate, sympathetic. But I would just say you're just more there. Uh, that's good. You know, that's really good. It's sufficient. So in that sense, uh, I, I, you know, you want you want someone to feel that. You want to feel that yourself as you're doing it. That's, you know, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of problem solving in being a storyteller. Yeah. And in, 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 in any creative enterprise, um, you paraphrase, paraphrase Einstein as saying, "No worthy problem is ever solved within the plane of its original conception." Right. Um, a student told me that Einstein said that. I can never find it. Oh, man, it might have been this, this really smart student who said it. Pseudo Einstein yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, how does the writer get out of the rut of his own story or yeah. her own story? That's the million-dollar question. Yeah. And I think, the, the, you know, for me, it has to do with coming back to it again and again and again, revising it over and over. So what seemed pretty good on 47 previous occasions might, on the 48th occasion, strike you as needing some adjustment. But for me, what I mean, there's an uh, unfortunate process I go through, which is I, I will write uh, a, what turns out to be about the first half of the story with really good energy and really good confidence, a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and then I will lock up. And it's not that I'm not writing, I'm just writing stuff that later gets thrown away. Uh, and I don't know, it just happened to me for the first time on a story called Sea Oak, which is in my second book. And I had this woman who kind of very, uh, submissive, gentle woman, working class woman, who uh, gets scared to death by these intruders who are coming. She has a heart attack and dies. So that was, I mean, and then there's a pretty good funeral scene uh, and a pretty good after funeral lunch. And there I was, like, huh. So the most interesting person in my story, I just killed her off. (laughs) And I don't know what to do. And it became kind of about the family trying to get out of this dangerous neighborhood. And that was like kind of after school specialists, and you know, or, or else they, then, then they do, you know, they, how, how? Uh, they yeah. both, they all get better jobs, and you know, it's not a story, so I, but I tried, I tried all these different endings, and when I say try, I mean, I have to go to the end and polish to see if it's going to work, yeah. and there'd be over and over that moment of truth where I'd get to that page and go, here it comes, and go, oh no, and the energy would just drop, and, and every, I had maybe five or six, I had 400 pages of alternate polished endings that wow. didn't work. And I just couldn't, you know, kid myself. So then at one point we went on vacation and I came back and I was just either taking a shower or taking a walk or one of those, you know, non-writing things. And uh, I was, <laughs> as I often was, I was rebuking myself mentally. Uh, so I was saying, wow, you know, you teach writing. <laughs> why, why can't you, you've been writing the story for three years now, why can't you write a stupid short story? You know, it's kind of, uh, and, I, and I said, you know, I know and by that time, I knew that this woman had to come back in the story, and I had her coming back in dream sequences, I had her coming back in flashbacks, and I just said, I know she has, you know she has to come back. And you know how sometimes your mind will just plop a phrase into your head? My mind said, from the grave. <laughs> and I was like, oh, of course, you know? And I had seen enough, enough Twilight Zone you know, to know what that would look like. So, so that was that thing that I, you know, the, 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 the story was refusing to be solved in the plane of its original conception, which was a realist story in which dead people stay dead. 
But the story said, I, my rhetorical needs are such that she has to come back. Are you bold enough to let her literally come back? I said, sure, yeah, I know how to do that. And then the story finished. But it was just being stuck for four years at that, at that point, you know, over and over. So I don't like that, and it's become, that, that pattern has kind of hardened for me. It happens every time, mm. and every time I don't know how to make that surge happen, and I just have to kind of patiently wait. Well, not wait, but work. Work yeah. really hard on what seems to be the best solution, and in time, the story will kind of burp and let me, let me <laughs> <get it. laughs> oh. yeah. But that's okay, you know, that, but that's, it's fun. It, yeah. it is fun to know that you're involved in a really difficult challenge that's not going to let you off easy. That's, I can't think of anything more fun because as you get older, you know, isn't it the truth that the worst thing is to feel like you're wasting your time, mm -hmm. you know, or you're spending your time on something trivial? Yeah. With this, I feel like, okay, it's hard. It's disproportionately hard, but it's, it feels like a worthy struggle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of us here would, would recognize the play in your work. And we certainly know that your work is crafted, but 400 pages that... You threw away. Yeah, I, I have them. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. But no, and also, sometimes they get repurposed. You know, there, yeah. there's a right. scene that you write that actually, well, you're just, in, oh, you poor little scene, you're just in the wrong story. You know? yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Um, one of the first stories uh, of yours I encountered was Pastorelia. Am I pronouncing yeah. that correctly? Yeah, you're the first person who ever had that. <laughs> um, well, like so many of your works of fiction, one of the things it does so well is illumine the ways we Americans abuse or distort or falsify with our words. Uh, for example, the narrator, you know, who's a, I take it, he's a, a caveman in a history theme park. Yeah. Um, um, and, and he has to keep giving himself a pep talk, uh, which I think has been handed to him by the corporation that he works for. Uh, I'm thinking positive, saying positive, uh, even though his son suffers a debilitating disease and he can't afford the medicine that might help him and he has to live away from home and participate in a humiliating job. You make it sound so sad. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, can you talk about the ways language betrays us or maybe even particularly the way corporate speak betrays us? Because you've had some experience in that world. Yeah, I worked for when uh, I got out of grad school and... The Nobel Prize didn't arrive, as I expected. And uh, so my, my wife and I had two daughters really quickly, and uh, she had been stuck in bed for both pregnancies. So we, so we went from being kind of beatniks to being not beatniks, you know, like being really like a, a married couple with two kids and not enough money. And um, so I went to work for this company, uh, an engineering... Well, first it was a, I worked for a, a pharmaceutical company as a tech writer, and then for an environmental an engineering company as a tech writer. So there's about eight years uh, where I was writing my first book in that environment. And, you know, you just were every day with that kind of language. And we did a lot of work for Kodak, and our role was kind of to be a, a scientific apologist for them. You know, we would do a study. And they were pretty, they were pretty valid studies, but, but when you went to write them, there was always a bit of passive voice, you know. Mistakes were made. Uh, you know. <laughs> Radiation was contributed, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but so then, so I had this kind of realization, or it wasn't even conscious, but in my, the work I was doing, it was like, well, you know, wherever there are more than one human being gathered, that's literature. It doesn't matter who they are or what they're saying, by definition, two people on a bus, that's literature. So we had nine people in a kind of a failing corporate office doing this kind of euphemistic work. And I, it finally occurred to me, if I can't make literature out of this, it doesn't have to be a bullfight. You know, not to be trout fishing. Uh, it's, it's human beings with families striving to make ends meet. So that, that was one thing. And then the other thing was, you know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And, uh, you know, that when in our neighborhood and among our friends and extended family, there wasn't a lot of sincere emoting. But there was a lot of emoting. So I remember I had an, you know, a, a, an older guy, an uncle or something, would say to you, hey, you fucking jack off. You, you got moxie. And I'm like, oh, he loves me. You know, that, I mean, that, that was, so, so the idea that you, that, the idea that I, I found myself drawn to was that every human being has a complete, of course, a complete emotional vocabulary. Yeah. Well, but on the way out, it gets stunted or filtered or edited or, or it gets fumbled. 
we know that from looking at ourselves. I mean, how many times have you stood at a, an airplane, or a, an airport, and said, well, have a great trip. And you know, your heart is overflowing, but you don't have the words. So, so my working assumption is every human being has a full emotional vocabulary. They, they export it in funny ways, but inarticulateness doesn't mean that there's no emotion there. So that became, now, that just became a trick for me to engage in something that I'm pretty good at, which is just making stuff up. I can, I, when we were in high school, that was the big game, was to sort of invent characters and just make up an accent and a funny walk, and, you know. So, so that, but really, that, that's the assumption that, that poetry, it, poetry is just language overflowing its banks. So if you're somebody who doesn't, uh, you know, you don't, you just, uh, you know, you, uh, you, that's a poem, you know, <laughs> because, because you know what I meant, what I, you know. So, so for me, that was, a, that was a great liberation. That gate came open, and instead of trying to vainly imitate some higher literary diction, which I couldn't do, I could settle in and say, ah, everything I hear is poetry. By definition, the American uh, argot is, is that the word argot? So, That'd be a kind of sweater, I don't know. But, but, <laughs> but, but any, anything that you hear is, is the grounds for poetry. And yeah. for me, the strength is to say, okay, I can take that and then I can, I don't have to replicate it, but I can use it. Like I, in Syracuse, that story Seal started with, uh, I was in Syracuse in the mall and I was walking behind these two teenage girls and they were talking to each other and it went something like this, like, I told that fucking shit, I'm gonna kick his fucking ass. I said, I'm gonna fucking stupid fucking shit. <laughs> and her friend was like, I know. And he said, I'm fucking you know, and, and this went on, and I'm like, I'm stalking them through the mall. Like, wow. What? And so I didn't, I don't have the capacity to memorize what they were saying, but I got the gist. And, <laughs> and, then, and then went home and just made up two people talking in my approximation of that, and that became those two young yeah. women in, the, in that story, CO. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's all poetry. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, in the Brain Dead Megaphone, you write, and this is the longest quote, so stay with me. Storytelling is a language rich enterprise. The best stories proceed from a mysterious, truth seeking impulse that narrative has when revised extensively. They are complex and baffling and ambiguous. They tend to make us slower to act rather than quicker. They make us more humble, cause us to empathize with people we don't know, because they help us imagine these people. And when we imagine these people, if the storytelling is good enough, we imagine them as being essentially like us. That's a beautiful expression. Thanks. I'll stand by that, I guess. <laughs> right. That's a beautiful expression of how fiction has the potential to make us more compassionate, uh, more kind. Um, are there particular stories that have done that for you? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. You know, there's one, uh, there's a, a short little Chekhov story called Grief, or sometimes it's called Misery. And it's just this guy, uh, you know, real lower, lower class uh, cabman, a horse cabman in, in Russia. And uh, you find out that his son has just died that day, but he came to work. And the whole story is him trying to tell his, his rides about his son. And they, you know, he's invisible to them. And one of them cuffs him in the back of the head and tells him to shut up. And, and uh, then at the end of that day, he's been unsuccessful in, in conveying this, his grief. Uh, and he takes his horse and puts the horse away and tells the story to the horse. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I, that story, every time I think of, every time I see somebody and do that little reflexive move where I go, don't need to deal with him, mm. you know, don't need to deal with her, or, or uh, this, you know, on this Trump piece that I'm doing, I met a lot of people who, my first, you know, liberal embed instinct is to go, oh, too bad he's so wrong, you know? <laughs> So I could certainly discount him. Or worse yet, as a, as a, if you're any of you are journalists, you know, part of the trick is to go, oh, I can use that. Mm. He can, he looks, he's saying something really stupid. I can nail him. Mm. I think of that story. Yeah. You, know, you don't know. We don't know what, uh, what secret griefs someone is carrying around. Mm. And the, the bad thing about grief is 
Grief just doesn't make tears roll down. Yeah. Grief also makes you angry, mm. and it makes you foreshorten other people, and it makes you aggressive sometimes. It could. So I, I, that story for me is, a, is I, I go back to that every now and then. You know that that if you if you uh, in fact he actually in the story the guy's kind of unlikable. He's kind of mm. crude, and he mm. kind of you know he's kind of a kiss up. Yeah. Uh, but his grief was as real as anybody else's. So it really expands the dimension of people. Right, and hold yeah. you accountable for not reducing them or treating them in a shallow way. Yeah, and the beauty of it is, I mean, if you're fiction writers, you know this happens. You, your first draft is usually mockery, at least mine is. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's, you're up here, and maybe the reader is a little below you, but you're, you know, you're willing to have her close. And down here is that stupid character that you're <laughs> kicking, you know. Uh, and, and with different writers, that distance is less, but I think your first draft is always going to be like this. As you revise, I think what happens is that person comes up in your estimation, mm. the character. And mm. as the character comes up in your estimation, the reader also comes up in your estimation. Because suddenly you, everybody is disallowing the cheap shots and the easy mm. dismissals. So, but this happens line to line. You know, you, you say, uh, I always tell this story, but you know, you say Frank, you write your story, Frank was a jerk. <laughs> well, if you've read Shakespeare, that line strikes you as being not the best. <laughs> you know, like, you know, Frank's a jerk. Okay, Frank's a jerk. Well, and, and what we train ourselves to do as fiction writers is say, well, how so? Yeah. Give me an example. And we ask that both for reasons of uh, wholeness, but also for reasons that say, if you give me specifics, the language will get better. Frank was a jerk. Hmm. Why do you say that? Frank uh, spoke angrily to the barista. All right, well, that's already a little better. It's not a judgment, it's a description. Frank spoke angry to the barista. Okay. And our fiction training says, why? Hmm. Nah, I don't know. Uh, Frank spoke angry to the barista because she reminded him of his wife. Okay, a little glib. Who had just died? Hmm. Frank, Frank spoke angry to the barista because she reminded him of Marie, who, he, who had just died. Suddenly, Frank's not... Frank's doing a jerky thing still, but Frank is complicated, mm. and I think you empathize more for the second Frank than that earlier Frank. That, mm. In a nutshell, that's the process. Now, it's not ever that simple, of course, but, but yeah, so, so you are training yourself. It's like compassion training wheels as you invent people who are very low, which you do, all the, you do every minute of every day. As you're walking through the airport and you see the guy with the, you know, whatever the opposing political party shirt is, you go, ah, I know that guy. Well, you don't, actually. And fiction gives you that rare opportunity to invent that guy and then revise him. Uh, and it's not that you're trying to make him perfect or unimpeachable. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to see what he is in its totality, mm -hmm. which then the judgment gets sort of evaporated out of it. Mm -hmm. And you're not for him or against him, but you love him mm -hmm. because you paid attention to him. Something like that. That's a great segue mm -hmm. into faith and writing. And um, I want to talk about spirituality with sure. you. Uh, you grew up as a Catholic. Uh, you've made your way into Buddhism. Uh, can you describe that journey? What motivated? And I know that you have a particular way of talking about Buddhism. So yeah. you go ahead. And yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was raised on uh, a particular kind of Catholic, which was Southside Chicago Catholic in the 60s. So it was, you know, I'm sure there are some people who can empathize. But I found it really a beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful tradition. And I think for a young artist, you know, to be among all that pomp and the huge metaphor, which basically, you know, to me, the mass always said there are meanings that you can sense that can't be articulated. And we do that through ritual. Yes. Uh, and that's a great model of somebody rising to the occasion of a, of a grand metaphor. Uh, I love that. And I had a couple of really deep experiences uh, when I was younger, kind of just, uh, we talked about lineage, but I had one, I was at uh, Saturday, Saturday afternoon mass or night mass, and I just had this really powerful sense of being, uh, of like sort of almost being able to imagine who the saints were, Peter and Paul and John, and, and, and feeling like I was in that lineage. Like they were, yeah, they were, they were there so that I, so that our generation could come. And then if I lived right, I could somehow be a part of that spiritual tradition. It was very powerful and ecstatic. And I was mm. sitting in church, it's kind of like, wow, this is so good. Well, then 
every Saturday night, my parents would go over to a friend's house and they would drink and play cards and I would play this baseball game with my friend who was my age. It was like a little card game or something. And I was like, even as I was having my ecstatic experience, I was like, oh no, we have to go play cards now. And I know this is gonna fade. Hmm. And I, I, I wanted to just stay in church or just go home, but you know, I had to go. So I remember so clearly sitting in the floor of this living room, playing that game and just watching that ecstasy die down, you know, mm. until I was just myself again, you know. Uh, but I think when I think about faith, faith to me is just remembering that that happened. Mm. And then <clears throat> arranging one's life so that every now and then the memory of the reality of that experience gets ritually rekindled in some way. Mm. So, uh, you know, we, I, then shortly after that, I walked in on a priest and a non-French kissing in the vestibule, which was a real faith tester. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, then, so it was just, that, but that stuff was, the spiritual stuff that I was hearing, uh, uh, this model of Jesus as an infinitely compassionate being, mm infinitely powerful because infinitely compassionate. That really seemed beautiful to me. Then I kind of drifted out of it. And um, many, many years later, my wife uh, led us to Buddhist practice. And I, what I liked about it was that compared to my experience of Catholicism, Buddhism was much more practical. There were, there were and I know that there are, are Christian practices, but I didn't find them when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So this, this was sort of rigorous, specific meditative practices you could do. And instead of saying, I'm, I'm trying to be good, but I'm not because I'm rotten, you could say, yeah, I'm pretty rotten, but... And then there was a way to kind of transform the mind. So that's what appealed to me about it. But having said that, I'm a real beginner, and what I found out about myself is that writing is really... Uh, I just... I think if I get to the end of my life and haven't worked through these different writing things I'm setting before myself, I'll be very unhappy. So I, that's kind of where most of my energy goes, is, mm-hmm. is writing more than anything else. Yeah. In, in eulogizing <laughs> David Foster Wallace, uh, you, it's, a, it's a great piece, oh, by the way. Um, you call him a Buddhist and a wake-up artist. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? And well, I, you so, know, do you see yourself as a wake-up artist? I, I would like to be, but not yeah. like... I mean, he's, he was something very special. I think, yeah. uh, you know, these great artists like Dave, I think what they do is they rouse us out of our habituated sloth. You know, mm-hmm. our, our, and, and basically, what is it? Okay, we, we are put here, and I think probably for Darwinian reasons, we labor under certain delusions. One is that we're permanent. Mm-hmm. We know that we are. We're not going anywhere. Those other schmucks are going to die, but we're not. The, the second one is that we're separate from, you know, that, that this particular person that we happen to be is the most important, central, all those things. Um, and so because, and I think it's just biological, we're set up with sensory, a sensory configuration that makes it feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, our consciousness develops and we have the limited physical body. All right, but every so often there's a little glimpse that that's not accurate. You know, I mean, for me, it ha- a couple of times in my life, I had people close to me pass away unexpectedly, and you know, you have that incredible feeling of just being ripped open, mm-hmm. tender, uh, clueless, confused, vulnerable, all those things. So, but it happens in prayer, it happens in meditation. Just that moment where the veil comes down a little, you go, oh, so this thing that, that I feel as reality every moment of my life actually isn't the ultimate reality. Um, I think a good artist can take you sort of artificially to that place briefly, which it's a great, it's a scale model of eternity in a certain way. And not in any big dramatic way, just yeah. the way that you feel a little unhinged after you read a beautiful story. Yeah. Uh, it's ritual. It's, it's in the same way that prayer is. Yeah. It's just a way of reminding yourself that the way you normally walk around is a little bit diluted. You know, and Dave did that for me because his, uh, his work was so intelligent and, and stylistically so complex. And he, he seemed to have an aversion, even as a person, to any kind of bullshit. He, he, uh, and I know this because I'm uh, a bit of a Pollyanna. Like I'm, I'm, um, I don't like criticizing anybody. I, I kind of like the truth, but not in real life. I don't, I'm not crazy about it. So when I would get around Dave, I, he just couldn't help. He's just an honest person, yeah. an honest man. And I would feel myself straightening up. And the kind of usual verbal 
hyperbole I would pull, I couldn't do it in front of him. Hmm. So I think some you know, people who, are, who end up being sort of like teachers for you are people who are so something that when you're around them, it's almost like they throw a light on you. Hmm. So when I was around him, I felt like, I, well, I certainly can't lie to him because he'll yeah. know it. And then I just noticed those little adjustments in attitude that I would make, mm. and that's great. That's amazing, you know. That's, and I think his prose does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and yours yours does too. I I think you're you're so committed to honesty. In fiction. In fiction. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, but this is one of the things I like about it. In yeah. In real life, I just can't, I'm listening to myself. I'm transcribing the tapes from this Trump story. Yeah. And I'm listening to myself, and I'm so full of it. Like I'm I'm constantly <laughs> constantly kissing up to people. Oh yeah, no, I, I know for sure. You know. Yeah. Not a truthful person, actually. Uh, but in fiction, you know, you you write a story full of lies. You have that golden opportunity to come back to it at your leisure and say that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And there's no peer pressure, there's no social pressure. You just say, well, do I want to lie in my story or not? I really don't. So that's a great chance. Again, scale modeling or kind yeah. of uh, tr- uh, honesty uh, training wheels in a certain sense. Yeah. But a lot of people don't come back to the art and check themselves. Right. And it yeah. seems like you do. And it seems like you have then a really a sacramental almost view of art. Is that Yeah, I, I mean, uh, without the, you know, without, without the, the grandi- incense, grandiosity. Yeah. I mean, of, what's a sacrament? Yeah. As I said, a sacrament is just a way of reminding the dummy that you usually are that there is eternity. You know? mm-hmm. Reminding the dummy you usually are that death is coming. And for me, the most important thing is, okay, if I look at myself, if any of us looks at ourselves over the many years of our lives, you see like a, a graph of, of the different people you've been. I used to be a, a, a Reagan-supporting Ayn Rand guy mm. when I was 18. Mm. I used to be a wild partier in Asia. Well, like a year later, figured that out. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and, I used to, and I had been madly, insanely jealous, and I've been, I mean, everything, we've all been all these things. So to me, the essence of the spiritual life is to say, okay, I've been all those things. Mm. What does that imply? Mutability. Mm. It implies that the way you are right now sitting in a chair is not fixed or permanent. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you surveyed all the people you've been and asked yourself, which is the most powerful state that I've ever inhabited? Now, when I asked that question, it's when I was most kicked in the gut, vulnerable, confused, ergo, loving. Mm. That's the most powerful I've ever been. And in that state, I had no doubt about what the right thing was to do. My ego had fallen away, not willingly, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the walls go back up and you're fine again. A good father, a husband, a professor, a writer. What? <laughs> you know, that, that, that guy comes back. That guy comes back. But I think, it, it, so I, what I'm saying is a spiritual life is for us to survey all the people we've been, which is the one I like the best or is the most powerful slash truthful slash sustainable. Then just say, oh yeah, I was once that woman, that, I was once that man. I could get back to that person, mm. I think. What's the method? Mm. And I think most people who are spiritual, that's their method. The method is to sacramentally do whatever it is that reminds them of that most powerful state that, that they've been in. Mm. Spiritual sloth is declining to do that because one is writing a novel, for example. You know? <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it. We're, we're down to about five minutes left, and uh, I wanted to open up to the audience here uh, a chance to ask you at least one question or two. Um, so we have Julia LaPlaca uh, with a microphone. Does someone have uh, a question for George Saunders? And Lou, thank you. That was a good, I love those questions. <laughs> thank you. So the, yeah. the answers are better. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Saunders, your your, uh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, your your teachers, uh, Tobias Wolf, uh, Ray Carver, um, work in a really uh, a realist uh, genre, and your satire is bouncing off the walls. Um, how did you move from having teachers who work in such gritty, real situations to having a talking bag of Doritos and girls with holes in their heads? Right. Yeah. Great question. Um, you know, actually, there's a there's a clue. Toby has a great story called uh, "Hunters in the Snow," if you know that one. And that that's Dave Wallace talked to me about how important that story was for him. Uh, it's a story that is realist, and there's just a little rupture about halfway through, where suddenly the things that are happening, you don't really accept them as realistic. 
Uh, and that story is very emotionally engaging. So I think for me, that story was one. And then Bartholomew's work, too, where, where you see that uh, I had always assumed, as I think a lot of young writers do, that the most emotionally engaging stories were the most real, the ones that kept themselves to the frame of the realistic. Well, that story of Toby's and Bartholomew's work and others made me think, Gogol made me think, oh, actually, no. As we said earlier, sometimes to get to the higher emotional registers, you have to violate realism. Why? Well, one re thing is that the world is constantly violating realism. You know, realism is not what actually happens. Realism is our conventionalized sense of what usually happens. I mean, being at these Trump rallies, that was not realistic. But it was, but it was real. So, so I think that's where, uh, for me, everything came together to say that the actual things that happen in this world are certainly not tidy or realistic. Therefore, to get at the feeling of that, we might have to. But practically what happened was I locked up for, I always joked I had this condition called the Hemingway boner. And so I just imitated him slavishly for about five years and got nowhere. Nothing was happening. Uh, and then, <laughs> oh, you laugh. It's not that funny. But, 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 but there was a moment of crisis where we had had our second daughter. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I was 32 or something, 30, whatever. Wasn't getting any results. And I just had a breakthrough. Uh, I'll probably talk about it tonight later. But I had written some really goofy silly, not realistic poems that my wife actually enjoyed. And that was the first time anybody had enjoyed my writing in about five years. <laughs> and something just popped and I went, okay, by any means necessary, I just want to engage a reader. Mm -hmm. If I have to be crazy, there's got to be a reason for that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. We need to bring this to a close. Thank you very much, George. Thank Sonic. you. I enjoyed it. Special thanks to George Saunders. The audiobook for his first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, features 166 different actors, including Nick Offerman, David Sedaris, Carrie Brownstein, and Mary Carr. Listen to a sample at georgesaundersbooks.com. Thanks also to Kirsten Valdez Quaid. You can follow her work at kirstenvaldezquaid.com. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Annika Kaptine, Carolyn Meiskins, Deb Breenstra, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing. 